Hi there, it's Nick here. Thanks so much for your continued support of the Nick Luck Daily Podcast. Wherever you consume your podcast, it is great to have you with us. I would alert you again to the racing app which is your one-stop shop and the easiest place now to download the show each and every morning as soon as it's ready. Many of you are doing so already, and that's not just because you can get access to all 880 episodes of this show, and very easily as well, but you can also watch live races. You can watch all the replays, and you can stream in the card with an active Fitstairs account. So do download it now, uh, the racing app. It's your one-stop shop and you will be able to catch up on all the previous episodes of your favourite daily racing podcast. You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Friday the 22nd of December. Grey day here in TW11, but nothing grey about the mood. It's the final podcast before Christmas. I'm wishing you all a very, very happy festive period. This is a podcast with a slight difference. We'll just take a little longer to linger over a few things today. In particular, Timeform's end of year awards. We'll be having a, a canter through those with their flat editor, David Johnson. I'll also be talking at some length um, courtesy of our friends at Weatherby's once again, with William Morgan, who has penned what Sir Mark Prescott describes as the seminal work on racecourses in Britain, and through that providing us with a social history of our sport. It is a perfect one for Christmas, and that comes along a little bit later. But first, clearly, as we have been all week, we need to concentrate on what's coming up over the Christmas period. Finally, the news came through that Jerry Colomb was going to go to Leopardstown uh, for the Savills chase after all the hoo-ha during the course of the week. Uh, Rishi Passad joins me today, and it's a Rishi Passad emboldened by a strong view on the feature race over the Christmas period, the King George VI chase on Boxing Day. Rishi, go on, kick us off with that. Well, I think Brave Man's game will win. I genuinely do, because I think he's the he's the horse that is naturally born, bred and built to race around Kempton. Um I know, I know it sounds a little bit boring, Nick, but I've spent a bit of time going through his old performances and just looking back at some of the times that he's clocked on his way to winning and producing his best performances. So, for example, when he won the Charlie Hall chase last year at Weatherby, he clocked a time of six minutes, 1.7 seconds in winning that race. Uh, he beat El Dorado Allen very comfortably, didn't seem too stressed. And for the majority of the race this year against Gentleman's Game, I thought he was going to win, even as Gentleman's Game travelled up quite nicely alongside him. Going down to the second to last, you thought he would win. Going down to the last, you thought he would win. Then he made that little mistake at the last and then he emptied out. But the other thing that was notable was that the time of that race, it took six minutes, 28.8 seconds, 27 seconds slower than when he won the race the year before. When he won the King George last year, he did it in a time of five minutes and 58 seconds. Um, when he got beaten by Royal Pagai, where you know he and Royal Pagai obviously were matching strides up the home straight, the last couple of fences, Royal Pagai was always in charge. Charlie Deutsch rode a really attacking race on Royal Pagai, got Brave Man's game at it, and the race actually took six minutes and 41 seconds. Brave Man's game was well out of his comfort zone. His comfort zone is a decent run, three-mile race on decent ground at a track which his stamina 
his deep reserves of stamina beyond three miles are not required. Um, and his combination of his speed and stamina for three miles at Kempton is exactly what he wants. That's the test he's he's very good at. He's won at Kempton a couple of times. Obviously, he's a novice race, and then he won the King George last year. This is his race. And I, I don't entirely buy into the theory, or if I'd never heard from Paul Nichols and Harry Cobden, I would have said that Brave Man's game has run close to his best on his two runs this season, but just had the stamina sucked out of him by the way those races were run, by the conditions on those two occasions at Weatherby and at Haydock. And back at Kempton, as long as it's not bottomless ground, I think he, he's the one to beat, despite Alaho being in there. And of course, the ground is the reason why Jerry Colomb is staying away from Kempton and his now going to mm. Leopardstown. So that's the third <laughs> uh, option in three days. But he has to go to Leopardstown for the for the Savills chase there. Uh, I, I, they've obviously got to be hoping that it rains quite hard at Leopardstown because it dries out there quicker than it dries out at Kempton. But anyway, that's where he's going. And you could almost argue it's a, into the lion's den because he's got some serious opposition to face, the Chibli Park horses and, of course, Galapin des Champs as well. Mm. Um, and with that in mind, we're going to hear from Willie Mullins now, who's been talking about his runners at Leopardstown specifically uh, and and about great memories of the place uh, as a whole, including with, with Florida Pearl going all the way back. Yes, uh, a lovely track, uh, fantastic. It's situated where it is. Uh, I guess the, all the catchment from Dublin, you know, is local. I mean, we, we've missed out, uh, we've lost Baldoyle and we've lost the Phoenix Park, so it's tremendous to still have a racetrack in our capital. Going back to Florida Pearl, they were great days, Willie, but you've had many great days there at Christmas and obviously Hurricane Fly was notable for his exploits around Leopardstown. Yes, I mean, he was, you know, one of a kind, I think, Hurricane Fly. Uh, I think he's 10 grade ones in, in Leopardstown over the years uh, loved the place he, he was a hell of a racehorse he certainly was and of course you're going to be busy this Christmas as well in Leopardstown William we perhaps chat about Fasile Vega in the, in the race and post novice chase on the opening day won his beginners chase at Navan last month and uh, he was very impressive he was and uh, I think the horse that fell in that race um, that would look to be going to be placed behind him won the other day so the, the race is getting better all the time um, you know, he likes Leopardstown he's won there a couple of times horses for courses so uh, he's wanted to follow I hope he won on the bridle the last day and he seems to have taken naturally to fences yes he's a wonderful big stride he's great scope for jumping and a uh, bit like his mother uh, Krivega that uh, you know he seems to have a bit of natural talent hopefully it brings him the whole way moving on to the Savills chase on the 28th and uh, Gallopin Deschamps is is, uh, is one of the great horses you've had here in Close Sutton uh, winner of the Gold Cup last year but his opening race in Punchestown I'm sure you'd be hoping for a better performance this time round I will yeah they, they moved John Durkin back and our fellow disappointed a little bit there but you know that, that I, I'm not sure we got the right tactics that day uh, we might change things around a bit for this race I'm looking forward to it looking forward to see what he can do and um, he's quite happy I'm quite happy with him at home. The Durkin Chase is a nice starting point for the season, Willie, to over two and a half miles, but he's back up to three miles now, and that'll obviously suit him a bit better as well. Yeah, it'll suit him, it'll suit the opposition. The, these horses want a trip. We'll learn a little bit more about him there, I think. The Christmas hurdle, you've both Stateman and Impere Pass entered, and, uh, you know, we start with Stateman, Willie. He, again, was extremely impressive in winning the Morgiana and carried on his good form from last season. Yes, he did what he had to do, did it well, so... Uh, looking forward to getting him out there again. It's an, a track that he likes as well. Very pleased. Imperi Pass probably uh, disappointed me a little in 
Fairy House, but I, I just think I had the wrong tactics with him. He's another one that maybe we should sharpen our tactics up with. It might improve him. And uh, then again, we're coming back to two miles here rather than the two and a half in Fairy House. Willie Mullins there talking to Dennis Kerwin on behalf of Leopardstown Racecourse. And it should just be noted that Willie was talking about Ampere Pass and his possible engagements over the Christmas period. As Anthony Bromley flagged up to us on the podcast yesterday, that horse will have an entry in the Rel Keel Hurdle at Cheltenham on New Year's Day as well. So just keep an eye on where Ampere Pass may turn up. And it won't just be Leopardstown or indeed Kempton or Limerick or wherever else that Willie Mullins has runners over the Christmas period. Uh, he might have one very important one at Tramore in their Savile's Chase, the Savile's Chase at Tremor and the Savile's Chase at Leopardstown, not to be confused. Tremor uh, is the destination for, drumroll please, pod favourite, Monkfish. Here's what he had to say. He's on the recovery mission. Uh, Savile's very good sponsors. They sponsor in Leopardstown and this race in Tremor, which gives, it's an alternative option for horses like him that maybe don't want the faster ground in, in Leopardstown. So you, you, we always have nice soft ground for the big three mile chasers down in Tremor. You know, it's great to have sponsors like Savile there. So we're looking forward to getting him out. I think he'll love the ground. He's been sound for the last you know, while, so we're very happy that we can, hopefully we can keep him that way. And he finished second to one of your own, Asterian Forlange, on his comeback run in, in the Grade 2 hurdles at Ferry House. So that, that was a, a, a pleasing comeback. It was. You know, once they come back and stay sound, what can you do? Only keep your fingers crossed and hope that they, they stay that way for the rest of the season. So there you have it. Willie Mullins there. And I didn't expect a, an appearance from pod favourite Monkfish. He's he's slid back again, and he's oh exciting. Yeah, I know he's off to Tremor. Uh, well, it's great to have him back. He was the second coming for a brief spell, wasn't he? A mm. um, couple of seasons back. It's great to have him back. But where he fits in the pecking order of the thousand horses that represents Willie Mullins, uh, who knows? Okay, so what about this Savile's Chase at Leopardstown? Then mm-hmm. it it looks a, a serious race now. It does look a serious race, but the fact that it's a Leopardstown leads me to thinking that. Galopin Deschamps is the one to beat. He's three from three over fences at Leopardstown. He's won those three races by an aggregate of almost 40 lengths. Obviously, one of those was that very impressive win uh, as a novice. Um, and you take into account the opposition or the horse that's beaten on their most recent two clashes, fast or slow, his record at Leopardstown is abysmal in comparison. He's had three runs and he's had three blowouts. Uh, at Leopardstown, fast or slow, for whatever reason. There may be excuses that we don't know about, but those are the facts that you're dealing with. Um, and I thought it was a very, very good comeback from Galopin de Champ over an inadequate trip. Um, I, I thought it set him up nicely for the season ahead. I think he's he's clearly the one to beat, and I'll be siding with him. Okay, what else are you looking forward to over Christmas? Um, keen to see how the Welsh national shapes up. I I've been keen on Nassalam for the race ever since he won uh, the trial, primarily because he's so unexposed at this sort of distance and in heavy ground. And obviously he's going to be a few pounds well in. But I'm now scared of the horse who is now favourite for the race. And he's got the old um, Jamie Snowden run over an inadequate trip prep for the big handicap as our, um, like, that's all right, Gino. Um, and of course, uh, you know, the, the horse that, Keep an eye on uh, Gitmaker, who runs at Ascot, because that that horse was ahead of Super Survivor at Lingfield, and Super Survivor is now obviously favourite for the race for the Welsh National. So I am scared of Super Survivor, but um, I've laid my cards down with Nasalam, and I'm not going to desert him now. So I'll be I'll be hoping that um, he he can find a little bit more. 
Uh, looking forward to the Corto Star Novices Chase, which is a wonderful, wonderful race with the French yeah. horse, Ile France. Who, who, who are you Classical dream. Uh, I think MS Allen is going to win. I hope so. I, I think he's very exciting, but how how good do you think Ile France is? Well, very, but it, it's it clearly you don't know how he's going to adapt to something completely different. So, mm. with that in mind, I think the sort of percentage player is a horse who I just think is such a neat little jumper. Hermes yeah, Allen wastes no time. Economical. I, I like that he's running in this. I think three miles is what he wants. So. I'm I'm pleased he's going here. I'm looking forward to that very very much. Uh, as I say, looking forward to seeing Constitution Hill back clearly on on Boxing Day, um, and and also to a horse who runs at Ascot tomorrow, Iberico Lord, who won mm. the, the Great Wood Hurdle. Now off a low mark, he's he's back in the big handicap hurdle at Ascot tomorrow. But I I think he could win again with his head in his chest and and almost work his way up into a being fringe championship class horse. Uh, and what about the long walk hurdle at Ascot tomorrow, the battle of the old boys? I think tomorrow is the changing of the guard, Nick. Thank you very much to all the old boys for doing great service over the past few seasons. But I think it's time that Frambo assumes the mantle of leading younger stayer. Well, everyone, particularly in horse racing, loves a good awards ceremony this close to Christmas. And I'm indebted to the Timeform organisation for their help with this today. Timeform have been rating horses since 1948, but obviously that has come with an increasing global focus uh, in the last two or three decades, which is what makes these end-of-year awards uh, that little bit more spicy. I will try and give every winner a name check. Equinox is dominant, as you can imagine. He's the champion of the rest of the world. He's the horse of the year for time form and he's also the leading male three-year-old and upwards he finishes the year with a rating a time form rating of 136 now time form flat editor david johnson is with us this morning to go through these uh, david uh, you only need a pair of eyes to work out how good this horse is but your numbers stack up really well too how's he got there yeah, like you say, um, you know, what we've seen just visually, Equinox, uh, a clear superstar, and uh, he really came to prominence to that European audience, funnily enough, out in Dubai, wasn't it, where his form tied in with so many of those good European horses, you know, finishing uh, ahead of Westover, Mostadaf, I think uh, the horse that finished third that day um, won a, a Group 1 in Germany as well, so his form stacks up really well uh, you know what he did in the spring and then he just carried it on back in his home country and uh, you know that japan cup uh, it's one of those races where you have to see it to believe it don't you it was uh, really impressive and as you mentioned um, in terms of his time form racing it's uh, it's bang up there that puts him in what i would call uh, an all-time great um, slightly behind baid uh, recently um, I think uh, on turf only Baid and Frankel have been rated higher in recent seasons, and uh, that one three six makes him uh, the joint highest uh, horse that we've ever rated that's been trained in Japan. So, yeah, he retires to stud with um, an excellent CV, and uh, look forward to seeing his progeny uh, in future years. I mean, to what extent did that Dubai win help you uh, with giving you your rating some ballast, or could you have? Could you have come up with that quite easily just based on your own uh, knowledge and study of racing in Japan? Yeah, I think um, when we first saw that performance in Dubai, it was a little bit, wow, is, is that really as good as it looks? Um, you know, we've seen before 
over in um, Dubai that some performances out there have not necessarily proven quite as good as they looked as time has gone on. So I think we probably took a relatively cautious view of that at the time. And I think uh, it's only rated about 134 after that, acknowledging that it could have been higher. And then as we've seen him go on later in the season, when a horse keeps winning by a wide margin, you just, you know, we talk about these ratings that we give a horse. It's not necessarily just based on one performance you end up being able to rate horses high because you see such a deep um, CV of, of performances that yeah. gives you the confidence that, well, it must be that good because he's done it again and again and again. Absolutely. It's the body of work, isn't it? And that takes us to the race of the year. And I was intrigued that although the Breed of the Triumph comes out top in your race of the year based on an average time for master rating of the first three home, you've got the Tenno Show Autumn won by Equinox and the Takarazuka Kinnan won by Equinox with that ridiculous when he had to go about 20 wide and it swallow the whole field up. You've got them top two, two, two of your top four, but you haven't got the Japan Cup in there. No, I, I think uh, it might be as much to do with the way that uh, the races are, um, uh, the way that they compile, because what we do is we take uh, the average um, performance of the horse's end of season ratings Part of the issue with the Japan Cup is that it was Philly, um, a Philly that finished second, uh -huh. who's only rated 124. And, uh, you know, it's, we've talked about it uh, a lot when uh, we had Enable, obviously. That £3 that they get, it makes such a huge difference to these kind of awards that we give out. So, yeah. Um, but I think what the race of the year does show with regards to um, Equinox is that the Tenno Show and Dubashima Classic uh, it wasn't just he was winning weak races by a wide margin. He was beating really good deep fields, and that's what that shows. Now, the champion of Europe is Ace Impact. No one's got any argument with that, surely. 133, again, puts him in that, a pretty significant bracket. I'm just looking at the second and third here, David. West over 131 and Hookham 130. I'd fancy Ace Impact to give that pair two and three pounds respectively, wouldn't you? Well, maybe. Um, and I, I guess that's the thing with... Uh, these uh, horses and ratings, you can only rate them on, on what they've done at the best. And obviously, um, if Westover and Hookham, we didn't have them run into the same ratings in the Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe as what they did in the King George. Obviously, uh, Ace Impact, um, you know, beat them uh, a fair way uh, in, in France. And uh, I think, um, you know, one of the frustrating things about a horse like Ace Impact is that uh, he retires to stud with a rating of 133, but as handicappers, we have the feeling that we didn't, we weren't able to put as high a figure on him as what we think he probably could have produced. And, you know, if he'd have stayed in training as a, a four-year-old, maybe his rating would have been, if we're talking in 12 months' time, sort of perhaps more in the high 130s rather than the low 130s. And if you're talking about fillies, the leading female three-year-old plus category is quite an interesting one and, and possibly quite a contentious one as well. Because in Spiral, who finished the season on a real high, winning a second Jacqueline Mahoua, storming performance with a brilliant closing sectional in the in the Breeders' Cup uh, filly and mare turf, is one pound behind Emily Upjohn. And with Emily Upjohn, it's a bit of a case of, oh, remember her? But on her day, one of those, isn't it? Yeah, ab absolutely that. And, uh, you know, if you think back to uh, that, that Coronation Cup win, which was obviously uh, relatively early in the season, you know, she looked so good that day, didn't she? And, uh, you know, Westover, whose form ties in with so many of these top races, is uh, a good guide to, to what she did. And the way that she just left him for dead that day, 
Um, and obviously, you know, when she finished second behind Paddington in the Coral Eclipse as well, that was the peak form Paddington. It wasn't the one that uh, we saw towards the end of the season where his form just tailed off a little bit. So uh, when she was on a game, which sadly, you know, she wasn't towards the end of the season, you know, she disappointed for the second year on the bounce in the King George and then we didn't see her again. So, uh, you know, obviously we know in spiral staying in training as a five-year-old, it'd be great if Emily Upjohn was to do the same. So you believe there is some ballast there and it, she wasn't just a one-hit wonder? I, I don't think she was. You know, uh, again, you know, you got the depth of uh, what she did as a, a three-year-old. Um, okay, she never hit quite the ratings as a three-year-old as she did as a four-year-old, but the way that she was going about things, you know, we saw how unlucky she was in the Oaks. You know, she won that... Um, race on Champions Day at the end of the season. And then, yeah, like I say, you know, it wasn't just the one-off performance. She gets that one two, six because she uh, ran to it twice in both the Coronation Cup and the Eclipse. David, just looking further down, nobody's going to be surprised that City of Troy heads the, the two-year-old ratings, 125p. I, I was perhaps more struck by the fact that you've got Henry Longfellow at 120p and Van Dijk at 119p. It, it seems to my eye that that is, that is real depth in in terms of high quality two-year-olds is that right contextually year on year i think so yeah um you know um city of troy's rating of 125p it, it's not off the scale for uh, a champion two-year-old you know if we remember pinatubo i think he was rated 134 who who was off the scale and obviously didn't didn't train on uh to, to quite the same degree as what uh, his two-year-old form threatened. But I think that's what's the, the real exciting thing about City of Troy is he's run to a really high level as a two-year-old, but the feeling is that you're still only scratching the surface. And, um, you know, he looks potentially, I've, I've said it before, I, it wouldn't surprise me, particularly given he's got that racing style, to, to keep winning by wide margins and putting up the kind of performance that you can put high ratings on. And I wouldn't be surprised if we end up suggesting at the end of his three-year-old career that he's the best horse that Aidan O'Brien's ever trained. And uh, that means that he'd have to beat Hawkwings 136. Uh, there'll be plenty of people who'd be quite pleased if he beats Hawkwings 136, which still has the still has the the slightly kind of fraudulent ring to it for, yeah. for some, doesn't it? Does that haunt you slightly, the Hawkwing rating? I guess it's one of them, it's frustrating and it's a little bit like um, the Harbinger one. It's like, uh, based on all the evidence that we had in front of us at the time, we're perfectly happy with it. The problem is, and it's like I said about Equinox, um, you were so confident in what he'd done because there was such a body of work. Whereas, you know, the likes of Hawkwing, you could argue he did only do it the once. Harbinger only did it the once and they got injured afterwards and you never got the chance to see it uh, through. Um, so, yeah, I think, um, you know, he was worth it on the day, Hawkwing. But, uh, yeah, to be nice to uh, not have to keep uh, pointing that out and have to hear everyone say, Hawkwing, what? Are you sure? Yeah, the th I've seen the thing with Hawkwing was that he he raced subsequent to that lockage and, and Harbinger, of course, it was his last run in the King George. So you think he left thinking, well... It could have been a freak, but I suppose he could have gone and done it again if he'd stayed sound. Anyway, we'll never know. The first season sire goes to two darn hearts beating Blue Point. Our friends at Dali will be very pleased with this. Uh, and I looked at, at how you'd uh, calibrated this, and it's based on an average time for master rating of the top 10 progeny. They must have had a minimum of 10 runners in Britain or Ireland. Is 99 as high as it seems? Is that is that a good uh, relative to history? Um, I, I don't have the full uh, historical ratings because this is the first time that we've awarded uh, this, but it, it seems quite high to me. And, uh, 
you know, I think the the real thing that's impressive with Tudan Hoss is uh, how hopefully his progeny should train on as, as three-year-olds. You know, he, he trained on well himself. He's from a, from a family of middle distance performers that trained on. And I think, you know, the likes of Ali Anabi, who um, is his best son and Fallen Angel, his best daughter, you know, they, they won group races as two-year-olds. Ali Anabi finished second in the Dewhurst, Fallen Angel, she won the Moigler. You know, they've got the potential to go and equip themselves really well in classics, haven't they? Um, I mean, Ali Anabi's obviously got, potentially going to run into City of Troy again, which will make things pretty difficult for him. But, um, you know, the likes of Blue Point, Calix, you wouldn't be quite so confident that their progeny are going to be quite as effective as um, as three-year-olds, perhaps, you know, given, uh, you know, that they were sprinters themselves and they, they're going to tend to produce sprinters. David, thanks so much for, for sharing these with us. I'll just spin through them one more time. Equinox Horse of the Year and Champion of the Rest of the World and Leading Male, three-year-old and upwards. Ace Impact Champion of Europe and then... Not too many surprises further down. City of Troy leading two-year-old. Tudon Hot first season sire. Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe was the race of the year uh, based on on average ratings. And the one I just spoke about there, which might raise an eyebrow too, is that Emily Upjohn is the leading female uh, three-year-olds and upward. David, thanks a lot. No, thanks a lot, Nick. So if there was one, not contentious, but slightly more open race for one of these divisional championships awarded by Timeformers, you heard there from, from David Johnson, it's that three-year-old and upward um, females section in which, as I said, Emily Upjohn just got the better of Inspiral. And I wanted to check in with Emily Upjohn's owner, John Shack, who's who's with me now. John, you've got so much pleasure out of out of this mare, and I'm sure we'll continue to do so. Um, what does it mean to you to see her atop a list like that? Uh, it's, it's sort of an incredible privilege in many ways. You know, we're small owners, as you know, competing with the biggest, biggest battalions around the world. And, you know, we're really chuffed. It's my family and I and partners, um, you know, sort of was in touch with Madeline Lloyd Webber, just sort of over the moon. And it's Madeline's second award. She won one for too darn hot. So um, yeah, it's a real privilege to, to have them as partners as well. Um, and I, I think the main point is that the you know I, I, I sort of um, go on about it a bit, but it, we've got to give hope to smaller owners to sort of be able to sort of have the dream. We're living the dream, and we're sort of trying to encourage others to sort of to, to do it as well. Uh, and there isn't much mystique in in how you've realised the dream either. I, I think I'm I'm right in saying, insofar as you go to a sale, you spend. Okay, uh, an amount of money that for a lot of people would be considered significant, but by the standards of international bloodstock was really rather insignificant. And you send a horse to good trainer and horse ends up being a, a, a multiple group one winner. Now, it doesn't always work out like that, but I guess your point is it is possible. Yes, um, it is possible, but but um, you've got to add the extra ingredient where we've got the most expert bloodstock agent and Tom Goff of Blandford Bloodstock, um, a, a, a brilliant independent thinker and analyst of pedigrees and, and um, what they look like, and he combines brilliantly with John and Thady Gosden. Um, we're, we're just sort of bit part players, my dad and I, in the whole process. But but I would encourage people sort of new to the game or existing owners to, to have a chat with Tom Goff. Um, and, and he's brilliant at just sort of guiding people as to, to the way forward. And, and, you know, as you know, we're not paying much 
for, for our middle distance pedigrees. Um, we've just brought a new master craftsman for sort of around half of what we paid for Emily. So they're there, hopefully um, she can sort of perform well, but they're there to be bought at Tattersall's. And as far as as far as you're concerned, you, you've you've had, I was going to say a few trainers, but not that many. How important do you think it is to find somebody that you get on with on a on a human level as well as respect in, in on a professional level, and stick at it through thick and thin rather than chopping and changing? Yes, it's, it's a really good question. That I mean, the the communication skills of the Goldstons is, is just quite superb. And um, I, my dad and I aren't owners who sort of interfere or intervene too much. So, so we we sort of like to give a trainer sort of carte blanche, but we still like the sort of communication links as well. And they're, they're both John and Fady brilliant at telling us things uh, along the way. Um, um, I'm I'm in Charlie Johnston and Mark Johnston's partnership, Kingsley Park. Um, I, I've been with them for many years just with a small share and that's a brilliant way to start off as an owner to have a 5% share in their partnership and they're brilliant communicators as well so yes, it's you have to get on with people on a human level but I think the onus is on the trainer also to sort of keep you in touch uh, John, uh, congratulations on a, on a terrific um, result with Emily Upjohn here where are we likely to see her next if at all? So with luck on our side, we're, we're going to give the Dubai Shima Classic a go on March the 30th. And uh, we were close to going there this year, but the, the, the cold spell in Newmarket just set Emily up, John, back a week or two. But um, hopefully with Equinox out the way and retired, we'll give it a really good shot. And hopefully hopefully um, Frankie Dettori will fly over from California for it. Well, that would be a story, of course, as well. Um, thanks so much, uh, John, and all the very best. Yes, and, and thanks for all you do for the industry. Much appreciated. Now, I appreciate that this is the last edition before Christmas, and there's going to be some frenetic last-minute Christmas shopping going on. I, I can point you in the direction of William Morgan, who has just published the second volume of what will be a four-part series uh, entitled Strongholds of Satan, uh, which chronicled the rise and demise of more than a thousand British racecourses, which in itself is a fairly staggering number. Uh, William, who has held a variety of roles in racing, has been a very successful breeder, member of the TBA, uh, and has devoted an awful lot of time to this seminal work, as described by Sir Mark Prescott in the foreword, is with me now. I I'm fascinated to get to get stuck into this, William. What what prompted the project in the first place? Well, I rode as an amateur, um, and I started with Walter Wharton, and he trained on an old race course, Croson Park, between Melton Mowbray and Grantham. And, uh, and, and that was interesting enough, in a way, and the, and the race course is still there. You can go there now. And... Um, uh, one day there was a retired policeman digging up champagne bottles and I went over as is my want uh, to uh, you know ask him what he was doing and, and, and Walter was there saying you know what are you supposed to be scoring these osses get over here you know but um and that's one of the things that started me off and also then going out to dinner with Dick Warden the the blood location to introduce Sheikh Mohammed to racing, a fascinating man in his own right and he he was we were talking about my kinsman the Antonys 
And he said, oh, you know, they stopped Brown Jack the first time he ran at Bournemouth, you know. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I thought, well, the two things there, you know, Bournemouth and then Brown Jack being stopped. He said, oh, yes, Tiny Burford, you know, was there stopping jockey and stopped him. And uh, he was supposed to stop him next time at Wolverhampton, but he couldn't hold him. And he won at 100 to 8. They were furious, you know. So all these, so the combination of these race courses and the tales that went with them were the thing that got me going, really. So this is a social history as much as it is anything else, as the title suggests. To what extent was racing in centuries gone by even more of a den of iniquity than it is now oh far more um i mean it's not often you you'd have a clerk of the course um crawling along the bottom of a hedge to avoid being arrested um because he'd held a prize fight on the race course uh, a few days previously um and and there was a lot of jiggery pokery but the the not not every race was crooked by any means, but but there was a lot of jiggery pokery. Um, and going back uh, to the 18th century, um, th- there had to be a specific rule in some races that crossing and jostling was not allowed. Otherwise, it was accepted that you did. Um, and to hold the whip hand, the phrase comes from the fact that the, the whip was held in the left hand, and if you managed to nudge against someone, they couldn't use their whip. So yeah, there was a fair bit. There was a fair bit. And that sheer amount of race courses that you chronicle, William. Do you think that was simply a a sign of the times and the popularity of the sport or was it more to do with horses being part of everyday life and therefore just closer to, to people's consciousness? I think, but I think both. You know, the, uh, in a way, because the racing at one time was uh, was a sort of heady combination and a dangerous combination. You know, we can talk about the regulation of gambling uh, if you want, but, but you know, at one time it was a national sport. It was the local holiday, and it was the local chance to drink and gamble. So. Um, and obviously, modern life changed that, uh, particularly the advent of the railways um, uh, and, and and increase in holidays um, changed that. But it was the the central, the race meeting was the central local focus for the year. Uh, so it was a social hub. The, these race courses, particularly the the more urban inner city race courses, were a were a social hub, an extension of going down to the pub, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there was far less leisure time in those days, and and uh, it was indeed the the local the local focus. You know, and the great thing was, you know, all life was there, as as again as Mark Presco put in in the in the forward, because the great and good would go there. It was a great way if you wanted to become a member of Parliament, you'd you'd support a race, as it were. But also, all the locals were there, um, so it was a, a real social melange. And what about racing in the cities, in the bigger cities, which we, we don't really see anymore? Why, why do you think racing has, has left the urban landscape as it has? Yeah, it's a very interesting point because the race courses in cities don't tend to go. They don't tend to be successful. You know, Wolverhampton is sort of, um, you know, in a city, as it were, and, and it's Saturday nights can sometimes get a decent crowd. But it seems that people like to travel a bit and, and, and to go to a, a race meeting. You know, um, I mean, Kempton races so many times, you're not going to, you know, get crowds there every time. But it, it really centres on one or two days a year. Um, and uh, whereas before, you know, and it, it's obviously, I suppose it's to, down to travel, you know, um, and of course, a lot of inner city places weren't quite so inner city in those days. And as you alluded earlier, you know, the horse was there every, everywhere. So there was a lot more green, um, even in sort of places like Hatcham and places like that, horses were everywhere. And they could they could find a green space to run a race course, especially since they didn't care too much what the race course looked like. You know, Hatcham race course, you know, in southeast London now, the at bottom of the old Kent Road was seven furlongs round, um, which was quite generous by the, the standards of those days. 
list. So, you know, it seems uh, it's a very odd thing. You know, Manchester fell, you know, it, it went off the radar. Birmingham, although um, uh, it was very popular with trainers, didn't get huge crowds on the whole by the time it finished. And, and it is a strange um, phenomenon that in a, in a race courses don't go. Talk to me a little bit about government's intervention in, in horse racing down the years, as you've as you've chronicled it, particularly uh, the legalisation of, of of gambling and how that affected uh, the race courses. Well, yeah, and and it's a uniformly, pretty much uniformly sorry tale, um, really. Um, as racing expanded from the sort of 17th to the 18th century, um, the first time that the government got involved with, with gambling particularly was in 1711, um, which was known as the Qui Tam Act, the whosoever. And it made bets recoverable in law above 50, uh, 10 pounds, including, and then you multiply the amount you owed as well. So that was an attempt to try and stop excessive gambling um, and it failed miserably and the government decided in the late 1730s to have several acts against gambling of different sorts and the racing one was introduced in 1739 to come into act in 1740 and that um, made uh, races races had to be worth 50 pounds clear of deductions um, and which was you know a huge amount of money I mean we're talking you know race uh, pound then being worth 200 pounds an hour so a lot of race courses now would blanch at the idea and the extraordinary thing was is within a few years it was being more honored in the breach than the observance and uh, races were being run within a few years um, I just the other day I found a record at Penniston uh, of races being run in 1743 and they weren't being run for 50 pounds um, so you know the government's made several, and, and then in, in the 1840s, they then got rid of um, uh, bets being recovered uh, in law because the courts were being so clogged up by a whole load of betting cases. And one of the you know references to today is is extraordinary that actually a Labour government in 2005 made bets uh, recoverable in law again, effectively uh, made that said they were debts like any others, which is which is a daft thing to do and. If the government wanted to um, help sort out, you know, gambling problems, um, they'd be far better to re- to repeal that act than doing what they're doing now, which is an absolute disaster. Because bookmakers will then self-regulate; they're not going to take bets off people that they, you know, that if they can't recover the money. Yes, all sorts of issues to do with regulation, deregulation. That two thousand and five act that I think people are, are, are trying to row back on now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it was. It's so often the case, you know, I, I get involved in politics quite a lot uh, up here. And um, so often, you know, you get what you might say well-meaning amateurs, on the whole well-meaning, not always, um, throwing a stone in a pond and having no idea where the, where the ripples will end up. And, um, you know, this is, I'm afraid, an absolute example of it. Uh, talking of well-meaning amateurs, uh, that's how the sport was effectively run and, uh, and regulated for many, many years. Um, was it effective? I think, to some degree, it was. I mean, um, the, the the role of the jockey club is quite interesting. You know, the jockey club got its power by osmosis. Um, you know, as I said, you know, the great and good used to go to a race meeting and they would sponsor it and they would be stewards. That's what stewards were. They weren't. They 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 were there to uphold the law, but they were really there as sponsors. And of course, they'd have absolutely no idea, really, of of what the what the rules were. So they would refer things to the jockey club. Um, and the jockey club would, despite not being there necessarily, would then give an answer, you know. Um, but they got ever more fed up 
with with local people referring cases to them and then because for local reasons you know you can't upset the chap who who, who builds the course as it were they 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 the, the local people wouldn't necessarily obey the instructions so the jockey club said well we're not going to um uh, adjudicate on any cases if you don't follow our rules and gradually that gave them the power um it wasn't any great act that suddenly the jockey club did that and and on the whole on the whole because people understood horses and everything else it worked reasonably well given that the rules were much looser were there any were there any race courses locations that that surprised you i mean i i assume that you you thought you kind of knew where everything was but have you been bowled over by exactly which nooks and crannies Britain found racecourses in during the during the years? Oh, endlessly, really. Um, you know, uh, Harrow, which of course you, you specifically know about, um, was the first one of the first centres for steeplechasing, the first godfather of steeplechasing, the sort of the J.P. McManus, if you like, of his day, because he, he he bought quite a few horses after they were proven. Was a fellow called John Elmore, Jack Elmore, and he owned Lottery, the first winner of the Grand National, and he was based at Uxenden in Harrow. And um, the Harrow country, as it was described, uh, between there and Kingsbury, um, was uh, one of the, you know. You know, these centres of steeplechasing, which would be quite difficult to imagine now, you know. Uh, yeah, almost impossible to imagine now. And I imagine that's replicated across all sorts of all sorts of cities. It, it is, uh, absolutely. You know, um, well, there were races even as far in as Westminster uh, in the 18th century. Um, Tothill Fields, right, very close to the House of Parliament. Um uh, was actually a race course. And yes, you could say um, Birmingham, Aston Park in Birmingham, right by the Aston Villa football ground. And they held the Birmingham meeting there once in the 1850s in the middle of the Crimean War. And it was the sort of scene of one of the biggest riots in Birmingham in, in Birmingham's history because um, about 18,000 people, sorry, 8,000 people, um, decided to reenact the Battle of Alma uh, and seized most of the bits of the race course in order to do it. So, so this... Uh, this this idea of a, of, a, of a few locals having a little scrap in the bar at Aintree on a Saturday afternoon is 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 nothing compared to what we could have expected back in the day. Oh, pathetic! And, and uh, at, um, in Lincoln uh, in the eighteen thirties, the, 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 um, there was a whole tent full of roulette tables, and in those days there was no zero on the roulette; it was called odds and evens. So the only way the house could be sure to win was to cheat. And the local yeomanry uh, took uh, against this, went to seize their horses, and charged the, the betting tent uh, on their horses. Uh, the betting tent uh, operators seized the, you know, grabbed hold of the legs of their tables, broke up their own tables in order to fight the. Yeoman off and but they were beaten up and uh, so and the tent was burned down and that was a you know relatively rural Lincoln so yeah it sort of certainly could stir emotions um uh, so to, to to end where we began I began by asking you whether racing was much more of a den of iniquity in in the olden days than it than it is now and the answer is most definitively yes William thanks so much for talking to me uh, strongholds of Satan the second volume has just been released and is presumably available in well, it's actually it's on- online, but if people Google Strongholds of Satan, it'll come up. Excellent. Okay, I will do just that, and you might just be able to do it in time for Christmas. And if you don't, it'll uh, see you into 2024 in good shape, and it's the second volume of four as well. William, thanks so much. Happy Christmas. Uh, thank you, and happy Christmas to you. Well, thanks to William, and thanks to all my guests today. Rishi is still with me. This is the final selection before Christmas. How are you spending uh, Christmas, Rish? Uh, I will be going down to my brother-in-law's uh, in Sussex, um, where you've been before and did some wonderful dancing um, on the garden. 
<laughs> in the garden. I'll never forget that. Some lovely pirouettes. You're very good at the pirouette, Nick. Um, so I'll be there. No, no pirouetting and no, no dancing. Um, but they always put on a good, a fantastic uh, meal. So I'm excited by that. Um, so Merry Christmas, everyone. What about you? What are you doing? Well, do give my love to Guy and Wendy and family. Lovely people that they are. Um, and I've not been asked back. I, I noticed since the since the dancing. Yes. Can we just move on? Okay. Um, I have got my brother and sister-in-law and nieces coming here. So uh, we are in TW11 for Christmas Day. And then I'm going down Lovely. to uh, brother-in-law's in Wiltshire on Boxing Day. Are you doing the cooking or Laura? Probably. I normally do. Oh, tremendous. What What's on? Have you got a, a menu sorted? Uh, so we're extremely boring, extremely traditional. And I know people say, oh, you never eat turkey any other time of the year. So, yeah, I'll, I'll, give, it the, I'll give it the run out the once. But, yeah, it'll be... Pretty standard fare. Do you do the Tom Carriage tip with the turkey? What is that? Is, is that when you turn it upside down first? Yeah, correct. For the first half of the cooking and then turn it over for the last bit where it crisps the skin up. I might try something a bit different this year because I wasn't very happy last year. Just <laughs> I didn't quite get it right. It was fine. It was fine. It was yeah. just, it had been better the previous year. Yeah, it's a great um, tip. It's it's never failed. Okay. With, All right. I will, or chicken. I will do carriage. I do like, I'll tell you the one thing um, mm. on Christmas Day I do like doing is um, boiling up the giblets first thing in the morning. <laughs> right? <laughs> Never thought those words would come out of your mouth. <laughs> Take your mind out of the gutter. But <laughs> boy, <laughs> boiling up your giblets with, you know, stick of celery, an onion, mm. all that stuff. Yeah. It's that, that smell first thing on Christmas morning. It's Christmas. It's Christmas. Now you may you may not like it, but it but it is Christmas. <laughs> this is Christmas. <laughs> you, know, you think of uh, me. You think of me. Bo boiling giblets. Boiling up my giblets <laughs> at seven at seven a.m. Because a, I can guarantee that, I can guarantee that at least one of my children will have come in at four thirty. Going, is it time <laughs> to get up yet? <laughs> oh wow! Now that's all I'm thinking of. You're boiling giblets. Uh, well, I, I think that's a that's the the note on on which to go out, isn't it? Um, happy Christmas! Happy Christmas to you! Happy Christmas, everyone! Thank you for your support uh, through this year. We will be back. I just need to give you our our Christmas schedule. Obviously, we're not here tomorrow, Saturday, or Sunday. Monday is Christmas Day, so you'll allow me a day off. Will you allow me a day off the podcast on Monday? Yes, indeed. Yeah, oh, we're the not... award winning podcast. Thank you, and we're not going to do we're not going to do. Uh, the morning of Boxing Day, but we will be back on Wednesday, which is the 27th, and then it'll be business as usual. So look forward to seeing you again then. Uh, but from all our team, have a wonderful Christmas, and we will see you next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.